Hello, and welcome to Quest, a vineyard church where we experience life as friends with faith through encountering God, loving others, and making a difference in our community. If you're new, there will be information at the end of this podcast where you can plug into Quest in person or online. Now let's dive into this week's teaching. So we've been in a short series of one-shot messages. We didn't really plan on having a, you know, a series, but uh, as Jeremy said last week, without us planning on it, there kind of became a theme developing between what Todd Rose was sharing and Jeremy was sharing and myself, and so maybe we should have just done the work and talked about it ahead of time and planned it ahead of time and branded something, you know, instead of uh, doing what we did. But we didn't. So it's been a little bit like... Uh, uh, like coaches before a game, just returning to talk about some of the fundamentals of getting us ready to play. And uh, Todd talked about fanning the flame of the spiritual gifts that God has given you in your life. I talked about the baseline of, of it all, of our ability to learn to partner with the Holy Spirit in all everything that we do. And Jeremy talked last week about everybody plays. And today we're going to kind of extend some of that and talking about how we kind of live all of that out in, in kind of a really practical way. And uh, Jeremy uh, reaffirmed that value last week of everybody plays uh, uh, through talking about the priesthood of all believers. And let me just expand his idea with one statement in this way. Here it is. There's no difference between secular and sacred. Being called to vocational ministry is not more of a sacred calling than whatever anybody else is doing in this world. There is no ministry and non-ministry in life. The only differentiation in our lives is between sacred and profane. None of you uh, are in secular work. All that you are doing is either sacred or profane. Now here's what I mean by profane. The Bible teaches us that profane work is any work that is not done in obedience to God or for the glory of God. So you can do the same thing one day and do the same thing another day, and one day it's profane and one day it's sacred, depending on your heart and your motivation and your relationship with Christ during that moment. Now, if I were to actually have planned a one-shot message on what most people ask, the, probably the number one question people ask me, I would have done this. I would have said, how do you know God's will for your life? And I would have probably tried to be really cutesy and put some sort of a three, a three easy steps to knowing God's will, even though it's not that simple. We all know that, right? In a way, this series, though, answers that question, at least in part, because God's will for most of our lives is really, uh, has, it has more to do with how we live than what we actually do. Um, in June, Ross and I went to go visit my mom and my brother in Minnesota, and we're still processing uh, the loss of my dad from a little over a year ago. And so my brother um, brought up um, questions about the meaning and purpose of life. You know, one of those light, casual conversations you have with your family. And um, anyway, so he gave me some permission to share his thoughts. And there's many things I just love about my brother. He's a really deep thinker. He shoots straight, um, with, sometimes with humor. Um, but rarely does my brother ever do surface conversations. But he helps me to be able to see some things that I didn't know were fully there. So with this discussion on life, he was struggling with the reality that no one's going to ever remember our names a generation after we're dead. He says, we're going to be that great-grandparent that nobody remembers unless somebody put our name down in a long-lost family photo album. And so to, to have lived and not be remembered, it was a struggle. And it made him question, like, well, then what is this life really all about? And it is. It's sobering to realize that our lives may not be remembered by those who follow us. 
Because for most of us, a statue is not going to be erected or our name is not going to be mentioned in a history book. You know, we're here and soon we'll be gone. So I'm not nearly as deep as my brother, but seen to some extent in the quickness and the brevity of my response back to him. But, you know, he shared this deep thought and question. And my answer was like, who cares? Like, we'll be gone. You know, so, but, um, but who cares? Like, we get to make a lasting difference um, in the ways that we live with our kids and our friends, our coworkers. You know, who cares if nobody remembers us? Because we're going to know. Well, I mean, that just wasn't that compassionate. So I should have worked on that response a little bit better. But, but I've been thinking about that. And I was reminded of what some people describe as the difference between an inheritance and a legacy. An inheritance is stuff, right? It's the stocks, the bonds, the cash, the cars, the houses, and the land. And it's great. I love to get it, you know. Um, but a legacy is something totally different, right? A legacy is never a thing. Legacy is always a person. An inheritance, you can be a jerk and leave an inheritance. But with a legacy, you can't buy it and you can't be a jerk to leave a good legacy because a legacy is something that you develop and it's something that you impart into the life of someone else. So what is the legacy that you and I leave behind? So when I think of legacy, I think of like Mother Teresa. Do you guys remember in 1994, for those of you that were born before 94, um, Mother Teresa, she was a speaker at the National Prayer Breakfast in D.C. And everyone knows that at that prayer breakfast, you don't say anything really controversial, right? But Mother Teresa either didn't get that memo or she just did whatever she wanted to do. So anyway, she spoke um, the entire time about abortion. She boldly called out the United States to respond to the crisis. And so afterwards, a reporter went and asked um, President Clinton, about his thoughts on, his, on her speech. And his response was, it is very difficult to argue with a life so well lived. Well, her life, legacy, right? My life, I don't know, legacy just sounds a little too huge, maybe ostentatious. Probably like some of you, I would prefer to be in the background as much as possible. It really doesn't bother me if my name's not remembered. But I do think no matter what, all of us want our lives to mean something, that by having lived, we would have made a difference. And because Christ is in our lives, there should be a different scene in how we live and what we leave behind. Our name may never be remembered, but each one of us plays, each one of us builds, and that is a legacy. Paul talks about legacy in 1 Corinthians, very succinctly summing up his life and how Jesus lived in these two verses. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So this is Paul's letter to the church, and so he's saying three things to us. Jesus is our foundation. As a master builder, Paul helped lay that foundation of Jesus in their lives. And third, we the church are not only invited, but we are told that we are to build on this foundation very intentionally with care upon one another. And so it means to me a couple of things. First, it means that there is no self-made person here. We might think that we pulled ourselves by the bootstraps and, you know, got here on our own, but we didn't. We didn't get here by ourselves. Someone said that if you ever see a turtle on the top of a fence post, what do you know one thing? That turtle did not get there on its own, right? And so we as fellow turtles, we know that it took an army of people to bring us to where we are today. We get to be a part of legacy of others who helped us get on that fence post. And the other point that it brings out to me, it, it reemphasizes the point just we made about 
that we are always building on other people's foundations, be it good or bad. We're building something. So the question for us is like, so what are we building? And that's what we want to focus in on today. Jesus is the master builder overall. And what kind of foundation and legacy did Jesus leave? And how did he leave it? And as we join that call to build intentionally, what are we building? And how do we do it? So it was right after I saw my brother in June that I um, also saw this video. Some of you may have also seen it, but it was a woman named Anna Lewis who received that horrible call telling her that her grown son, a father of three young kids, had been killed in a car accident and he was brain dead. Um, So in the midst of her pain and loss, she chose to donate his organs. And so this video shows her meeting the man who received his heart. I just watched that video over and over again, and I just wondered, like, how does someone live through that kind of loss? I mean, it's pain, and then it's also an element of beauty at the same time to know that your son is gone, and yet his heart is allowing someone else to live. And then also, like, what is it like for that donor? I mean, the donor receiver, um, you know, he was desperately needing a new heart. And, um, and that, I mean, it's just so huge. It made me start thinking, like, what it means when the Bible talks about our need to receive a new heart. So the prophet Ezekiel um, was telling about what the Messiah was going to do, the coming Savior, our rescuer, what he was going to do for us. And it, we see it in this verse, like, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit and I will, I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Jesus came to give us a new heart. And so we are all like that man who was in the video whose heart was failing. All of us need a heart transplant. Our hearts are just not going to make it. They are diseased with sin. and We are not good enough. We are never going to be strong enough. I mean, the donor recipient in here, he had even tried open heart surgery, but that failed itself. He was desperately in need of a new heart, and we are that way as well. And Jesus desires to give us a new heart, and that change takes place at salvation. So the heart recipient's impending demise was so very real. Yet as he hoped for a new heart, he knew that he would receive that at a great cost, right? At someone else's so much pain and grief. And so at such a sacrifice, he did receive a new heart. And because of such a sacrifice, what we have received a new heart as well. Um, A heart transplant cardiologist, he described the stark difference that he sees when surgeons remove a diseased, discolored heart. And then they replace it with this vibrant, healthy, pink, new donor heart. And I always just really was rocking in my world of thinking what a vivid image that is of our spiritual heart transplant. Because if we've chosen to follow Jesus, I mean, it would be like if God came and took a stethoscope to our heart, he would hear the heartbeat of his own son in us. I mean, it's that ever-present heartbeat 
that helps us to live. And there is such a strength in that as we help build a legacy. And so what is this heart that Jesus gives us? The New Living Translation took that Ezekiel passage and it talked about that we have a heart that's the opposite of stony and stubborn. We are given hearts that are tender and responsive. So we're not given a heart that's frail, it's not broken, but it's strong and it's healthy and it's full. It's full of a lot of things, and one of the main things it is, is love, right? Because God is love, his heartbeat within us resonates with love. So what does this love look like, and what does it sound like? You know, love is described throughout the scripture, we know that. But what is one of the go-to messages that we always run to when we want to know how do you define love? We hear it at every wedding. 1 Corinthians 13, yeah. And I would encourage you to read that whole chapter today, but I wanted to focus in on one part of Paul's description of love. Because before dating Ross, which was many years ago, um, I had been in, a, in about a year-long relationship. was pretty confusing, and it left me really uncertain about what love really is, what does it look like and feel like. So I met Ross about a year later, and I was pretty gun-shy about being in any kind of relationship. Yet I would have to say Ross is pretty persuasive. So anyway, um, my feelings grew for Ross. Um, it grew for us, yeah. But I, I just wasn't sure it was love. Like, he knew it was love. I'm like, uh, I don't even know what that, for sure that is. And so what did I do? I went, like, show me in the Bible. How do I know what love really is? And so I went to First Corinthians, and I landed on verse 7, where it says, Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. It's the word believing that just so stood out to me. Embedded in the very definition of love is the concept of believing. I mean, so I studied what that Greek word for believing communicates, and it means you're always looking for the best. You always believe the best in, because love believes in. And that verse has settled my heart, because I knew I believed in Ross. Like, when I looked at him, I saw a young man um, who loved God, and I could envision a small part of what I think that God wanted for him to be and to become, and I wanted to participate in that. I mean, there were definitely other feelings I had, too. But that was that believing aspect of love that just made me feel a little bit more confident that what I was feeling and thinking truly was love. And because God is love, we can switch out the word for love in this passage and put Jesus' name in its place. So it would be like Jesus is saying, um, or Jesus bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and Jesus endures all things. And I think that's the uh, part that I think God wants us to get more and more. Because when Jesus says that he loves you, he is saying, I believe in you. I always look for the best in you. I always believe the best in you. And even when we think that we're a mistake or our flaws are just way too big um, and I don't have much to offer, God's heart is always for you. Every beat says, I believe in you. You know, Steve Jobs um, valued a quote that many people love, which says, having children is like deciding forever to have your heart go walking around outside your body. And uh, I think it's a good descriptor. And, and more than anything that Steve Jobs ever did with technology, he said his kids meant 10,000 times more. His kids carried his heart. And I think that's such a good descriptor of how God loves, right? Because as an ultimate parent, in a sense, God's heart is running around outside of himself for you, his kid. So the first step in building a legacy is knowing how much God loves you, how much he believes in you. And second step is out of that love, we love and we believe strongly in others. So we wanted to look a little bit more how Jesus believed in his disciples, how he left his legacy. I'm not going to be able to match that. She really made me feel good. 
Oh, you're sweet. Are you talking about how how uh, uh, I loved you? She didn't realize how much the enduring and persevering. Oh, what were the other, that were the other two words on either end of that? No, I'll talk about that in a case. different she'll, sermon. Okay, she'll tell you about that some other time. So, the, one of the most beautiful, and difficult things about being a pastor, I think, is the, the the depth and the breadth of people's experiences you get to be a part of. It is an incredible honor, and it's also oftentimes a heartache. In one day. You can be celebrating the birth of a child or doing somebody's wedding and someone else you're talking with is losing their loved one to sickness or death. And one person is celebrating success while another person is struggling to be free of self-destructive beliefs and behaviors. You experience these kinds of beauty and these kinds of things and the pain and the relationships that you have as well. And I think it pulls out for all of us a question we have to face. How do you live? How... Do you enjoy life when so many are going through so much difficulty and pain? Because we want to leave a legacy and we want it to be much more than just pain, don't we? I'm actually reminded of a really dreadful incident uh, that happened in New York City. Uh, a sequence of events had befallen a young woman who, it was, it's, it's almost describable, it, it feels like too heartrending to even talk about here and repeat, and, and it's going gonna, it's gonna to rend some of your hearts as I say this, but, but I think it's something that we need to talk about in this context, even though it's so difficult and so hard. This was a young woman who had moved from a small town in Ohio to New York City, and she uh, had given birth to a baby born out of rape. She was unemployed, basically living on assistance, and she was discharged from the hospital with the baby after delivering the baby, and the only reasonable way she could get home was to take a cab, which by the time she paid for the cab, left her with one dollar to her name. She got into her apartment. She was all alone. Nobody was there to help her out, and so her dog hadn't been fed for a couple days. And she was hungry, and she picked up the mail that was waiting for her, and, and, and there was a check in there. So she decided to quickly leave the baby and run down to the end of the block, cash the check, and get some food for her and her dog. And she came back to find that the dog had eaten her baby. Feeling the whole city's shocked pain, I sent her agonized, talking about it, saying, how, how can so much go wrong in one life and nobody be aware of it. A city councilman responded to the horror trying to process it in the most plausible way he could, and he said this. He said, life is, life is too busy and complicated for me to hear the cry of every person in my community. I, I struggle, he said, to find time to even hear the cries of my own family. And I know that may sound like an excuse, but listen, he goes on and he quotes a, a, a literary figure when he says this. He says, if I had to listen to the cry of everyone in this city, you may as well ask me to listen to the sound of every blade of grass growing and to every heartbeat of every squirrel in this city. The noise would be deafening on the other side of silence. And I think we get that, don't we? The amount of pain and suffering in our world, even in our own backyard, is overwhelming. When you truly see how much is hidden below the surface, even in our own workplace, and our own neighborhoods, it is overwhelming. How do we deal with so much pain? Our hearts can't bear it. 
There's only one place that can handle the entirety of human suffering. And that place is in the heart of God. And what God does then is he breaks out that portions of his heart and his, his compassion to us, giving each of us a little piece of that and asking us the question then, what is your portion that he wants you to carry? What is your part? That's the reason everyone plays is such an important value for us. That's the reason when Paul writes about us as followers of Jesus being one body, the body of Christ in this world, he goes on and says, "If, if one part of that body does not do its part, all of us suffer, don't we? See, you can't bear the pain and the need of the entire nation. You can't even bear the pain and the need of your neighborhood or your workplace all on your own. But each of us can do our part. That's the reason we're talking about legacy. How do we leave one? See, when Jesus had three and a half years left on this planet, he set out to create his living legacy. And and a part of that legacy was Matthew the tax collector. If you remember the way Matthew made his living, he was a Jew who made his money by, by gouging extra money above and beyond what the Roman occupiers wanted him to get then he would give some to Rome and he would keep some for himself by charging them over and above what they were supposed to pay. The Bible tells us that Jesus saw Matthew. And if you read that, you have to almost think of him being there. And he probably watched Matthew for some time. Jesus knew how things were done. He knew what Matthew was doing. And yet Jesus saw something in him. I suspect that Jesus may have thought and may have said, you know... Matthew's doing the wrong thing, but he's doing it great. And Matthew is detailed and keeping an accurate record of things. So Jesus walked up to Matthew and he said the magic words to him. He said, come and follow me. And Matthew immediately left everything he was doing and started following Jesus. But Jesus had a strategic plan for Matthew. See, you see, Jesus knew Matthew didn't know, but Jesus knew how the New Testament was going to happen. He knew that one of the four Gospels that was going to record his life and ministry was going to be written by Matthew, this person who was so good at keeping an accurate record and accurate accounts of things. See, Jesus believed in Matthew when nobody else would believe him. And and understand, even when Jesus reached out to him and Matthew started following him, Jesus was taking a big risk, wasn't he? But Jesus believed in Matthew. What about Thomas? What do we know about Thomas? What's he referred to? Doubting Thomas, right? I mean, here, we're in the 21st century. And a man who messed up way back then, we're still calling him Doubting Thomas, right? Doubting Thomas, history informs us, traveled the farthest of any of the 12 disciples of Jesus in spreading the gospel. He went to the country of India. That's before there were airplanes and before there were SUVs and no GPSs. He trekked all the way from Israel to India. And some historical documents inform us that one day he was standing on the banks of the ocean watching the Hindu priests in the Indian Ocean who were standing waist deep and 
They were worshiping the elements, which was their practice. They were cupping their hands and throwing water up to the sun god and splashing water everywhere, throwing it, wa- throwing it up, watching it come down. It just sounds like a day at the pool to me, uh, you know, a fun time, right? Uh, the recorded accounts tell that Thomas actually pulled up his rabbinical robes. He walked right down into the water, into the middle of the water, into the middle of the Hindu priests, waist deep, and looked at them and said, you throw up water to your God and it comes down. And, and, and what if I threw up water to my God and it stayed there and hung in the air? Would you believe in my God then? We're talking about who now? Doubting Thomas, right? These recorded accounts of this inform us that he picked up water, he threw it up in the air, it hung in midair, God did a miracle, and many people came to faith. And even if you don't believe that story, the reality is many, many people came to faith through Thomas's ministry and through miracles of the Holy Spirit showing up. So much so that there's still a church called Thomasites in India to this very day. Because even though one day when Thomas messed up, in a room all by himself, doubting Jesus' resurrection. Jesus still looked at him and said, I I, I know right now you don't believe in me, but Thomas, my believing in you is not dependent on you believing in me. And he looked at Thomas and said, it doesn't matter what people say about you. I believe in you. I want you to know that no matter what's going on in your life, you, you might have stopped believing in yourself. You might have, the people around you might have stopped believing in you. In fact, uh, the people around you might have written you off. They might have taken the folly of your life instead of sticking it back in the file cabinet. They may have run it through the shredder. And yet today still, God is here saying to you, I believe Barnabas is one of my favorite people in the Bible, and I love this guy so much, but not enough that I wanted to name any of my boys after him because I, I just kept thinking of Mayberry and Barney Fife, and, uh, but, but I love the meaning of Barnabas's name. It means son of encouragement, and it's a perfect name for him because um, that's what he did. Barnabas and Paul were a missionary team, and you don't maybe hear a lot about Barnabas, but he had a huge impact on the development of the church and, and the Bible. Paul and Barnabas eventually brought on John Mark to be a part of, to mentor him and brought him on their missionary journeys. John Mark had some issues, and then Paul says, I'm done. I don't want to work with him anymore. But Barnabas disagreed with Paul's assessment of him. He saw something in John Mark that other people didn't. So this great missionary team of Paul and Barnabas split up because Barnabas believed in John Mark, and he wanted to stick with him. And so what do we know about John Mark? He became a critical leader in the church. He wrote the Gospel of Mark, in which we have some of the most succinct power stories of Jesus. So where would we be without Mark? But where would we be about Barnabas without him? We may not remember his name, but he has left a legacy. He believed in someone when other people did not. So in some ways, Barnabas' heart became a part of John Mark's, and therefore it's also a part of our heartbeat. I love seeing other people do their part, building on the foundation of other people believing in them and living, living out like, being like Jesus in the world around us, especially among us here at Quest. I wish I could spend time interviewing every person that I'm going to talk about here from Quest, but, but, but I just love seeing it. There's so much happening here. I love seeing how one person among us adopted a little sister and in the process adopted her whole family and is making such a difference, changing 
an entire trajectory for a young girl and even a family for a generation. I, I love to see how a few families are so passionate about risk, uh, at-risk teens and, and the poor so that they go weekly and give counsel and weekly serve in institutions around town. We have a, a wonderful uh, family taking care of a child in their own neighborhood who, who they discovered was not getting all the support they needed and care in life, and so they've basically made that child essentially part of their family. I love seeing how our youth group has served at Warm Summer Lunch Club, and, and that combined with the, the power and wisdom of praying parents has resulted in one of our very own now being employed at Warm, serving families and particularly young children at risk. I love seeing how our family at Quest came together years ago when a close friend died, and then a few months later the spouse died, leaving their children alone. And they became surrogate parents to them. And for the last decade, they've been caring for those kids, traveling great distances to be with them for holidays and weddings and walking them through desperate sickness moments in their life, even right now. I love seeing how someone in our congregation consistently leads in such an effective way that their Hindu co-workers come to them asking for guidance and direction in their life just because of the way they believe in and care for the people around them. I love seeing a team of volunteers that we have who oversees Quest Hair here at the church, walking people through difficult times. Did you know since we started Quest Hair, we've been able to, as a congregation, give away over $90,000 to help people facing really difficult moments financially in their life. On the screen, you'll see a breakdown of how that money has been used since its inception. And it's more than money. It's so much more than money. The men and the women leading Quest Care have dealt with people facing tough and desperate circumstances. And the emotions and the struggles of people going through those times. And it's been more than money because they've been able to give them hope They've helped the people find not just financial stability, but they've helped them find emotional and spiritual hope and strength in their lives. I mean, when someone needs counseling and they can't afford it, Quest Care has helped them, mostly through Thrive, our community-based counseling center that we here at Quest have. And, and you can count the number of marriages who have been saved, who probably would have ended up in divorce without the help because they weren't going to get it. You can count people whose lives have been saved because they've been suicidal and they've had a place to go when they were in need and they're alive today because of it. We've helped people find and discover a good God in the midst of facing their own addiction recovery or their recovery from abuse and all sorts of difficult things. I mean, when someone lost their job or, or had tremendous financial strain, a number of people have faced this because of sickness or hospitalization. The Quest Care team has not been there only just to keep them in a warm house or to literally, in some instances, keep them from becoming homeless, but it's given them hope and prayer and encouragement. I haven't talked about this ministry very much. I haven't talked about it enough at all. But we encourage you actually each week to give just a little bit of something beyond your normal giving to Quest Care. It's actually a line item designation you can make even in the app. And we just encourage you to continue to give because that all goes to fantastic ministry happening around here. These and many other things happening here at the church and outside of the church in your own individual lives. These are the layers that we are building upon the foundation of Jesus. Layer by layer, building a legacy that carries on, that builds on the work of those before us and the people behind us are going to build on that same work. See, the needs around us are so, so tremendous, 
so overwhelming, even in our wealthy communities. But what's your part? Who are the people in your life who you can believe in, who you can see the best in, who you can encourage and walk through, walk through those difficult times in their life with? Who has God put you in the life of that you are able to take what God has built in your life and give it away and encourage somebody else with it? You see, the simple and profound act of believing in someone else, believing who God is calling them to be, is at the core, is at the core of your legacy. When it comes down to it, the greatest gift we can give one another is to believe in them, to truly see them and affirm the core truth that each person is significant to God. The needs are huge, but the layers that we add don't have to be huge. They can be often very simple and small. It reminds me of what John F. Kennedy's mom, Rose, said. She said, whenever I held my newborn baby in my arms, I used to think that what I said and did to him could have an influence on him, not, on, not only on him, but on all whom he met, not only for a day or a month or a year, but for all eternity. That's a very challenging and exciting thought for a mother. I mean, so it's all the diaper changes, the burping, the holding, the smiling. It's more than just being like this responsible parent. Like you're building layers upon layers to that little one's foundation. And not just for the benefit of that child, but for all that they meet, whoever they're going to meet. I don't know, it just makes me want to go hug a baby. I don't want to do the diaper, but I'll, I would do want to hug a baby. Um, but I mean, this awareness of how even mundane tasks build someone and it can have infinite rippling effects and it applies much more than parenting, right? It reminds us that how we interact daily with others can have a positive spiraling effect forward. I remember one personal affirmation that a professor gave that changed my life. It took him about 10 seconds, but those words have continued to resound in my life over over and again and affect how I parent, how I counsel, and how I teach. Um, so as we close, I just want you to picture again that mom that lost her son and his heart that continues to beat. This picture shows where she was reminiscing with the, the one who was receiving the heart. She was remembering what it was like to hear that heartbeat in her womb when she heard it for the first time and what it was like to hear it again in another man's chest. And, and she just was so overwhelmed and she said, my son's alive. And a few moments later, she told him, um, she told the man, she says, take good care of his heart. And I think that God would say the same thing to us. Take that his, my son's alive and his, light, his heart beats if in you. So take good care of my heart. So our prayer is that the, the strength of God's heart within you come out in how you love and how you believe in others around you. Allow us to suggest two tangible actions you can take today to just follow this up. I want to suggest to you that as you go to lunch in just a few moments, you talk with your friends or your family, that you actually start talking and center the conversation around who has been really big in your life. Who has believed in you and made you who you are today? The people whose work you now build upon, the people whose work you now pass on to others. And if those people are still alive or you know where they're at, send them a thank you this week if you're able. And I want you to do a second thing, too. I want you to ask God who he wants you to believe in. It's easy for us to believe in people who seem to have it all, easy, all together. It would have been really easy for Jesus to have believed in somebody other than doubting Thomas and gouging Matthew, right? But how do you believe in people who, from the outside, look like they don't have it all together? 
Who is God inviting you like that to believe in? Wendy and I love you and we believe in you. We believe God has really, really good things for each and every one of you and for us as people together who are quest. God has people in your life who are your part, who he wants to save, he wants to strengthen, he wants to heal by helping them experience God's belief in them because you believe in them. Who are the people God is asking you to believe in? What's your part in caring for and taking part of God's heart and letting his compassion and his care come across to other people? Over the next month, you get to be blessed by a number of people I believe in. We have a series starting next week called Your Turn. It's going to be a fantastic series. But no matter where you're at in life, we all are stuck in a certain area of our life and we want to grow. This is going to be a great series to help you deal with that area you're stuck in and begin to move to that next phase of growth and freedom in that area of your life. And the series is going to be led by several people from among us here who I believe in their gifts and calling on their lives. They'll be speaking to you each week as Wendy and I I take, uh, for the first time in eight years pastoring, we're going to take a number of weeks of vacation all on a block to just have an extended time away uh, just to rest and refocus. And we've been working on this series for six months, and I want you to just come because God has given a lot to these guys who are going to be sharing with you over the next few weeks. The bottom line for our message today is God believes in you, and he calls you to express that same compassionate belief in other people. And that starts for some of you. If you haven't accepted God's belief in you, if you haven't accepted Jesus' offer of forgiveness, his offer of empowering you with his very spirit, that you would know the power and presence of his spirit leading you and bringing healing to you and working through you to bring great meaning to your life, then I invite you to make that decision to meet Jesus in that way today. You can talk to anyone of us who will be praying after service to do that. I invite you to do that. Wendy's going to lead us. If you want to stand, she's going to lead us in some prayer. I wanted to do a little bit of a variation on a centering prayer. And so just sort of take a moment and try to get in touch with what you to sense your own heartbeat. And as you do that, I just want you to soak in the truth that if you've accepted Jesus as your Savior, his heartbeat lives in you. And if you haven't, I mean, you can ask him now. So listen to that heartbeat. And then also, in addition to hearing Jesus' heartbeat, you can hear the heartbeat of many people that have gone before you into where you are now. Lord, we are so grateful that you live within us in ways that we just aren't always aware of. We're so thankful that you believe in us when it's hard for us to believe in ourselves. Thank you so much for believing the good in us. Lord, we just ask that you would... Help us to know how to love, love really well, to believe in those people. We're just so grateful for who you are. In the name of Jesus, amen. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon audio. If you're loving Quest Podcast, let us know on Facebook or Twitter by using the hashtag GoToQuest. For more information on Quest, who we are, and what God is doing here, or if you would like to help support Quest financially, please visit us at gotoquest.org. That's G-O-T-O-Quest.org. Thanks for listening.